From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. Today on End of Day Drinks, we're talking to Giulia Prestia, owner of Venturini Baldini Winery in Emilia-Romagna, Italy, where she makes the sparkling red wine, Lambrusco. We'll talk about what Lambrusco is, and it's not the fizzy sweet stuff from the 80s, and this new generation of Lambrusco winemakers and their approach. We'll also talk about the importance of organics in winemaking, what foods to pair with Lambrusco, and of course, by the end of this episode, you'll probably want to fly off to Italy. They happen to have a hotel and restaurant on their property. We'll give you those deets. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to VinePair's End of Day Drinks podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tastings director of VinePair, as well as the host of VinePair's Wine 101 podcast. Today, I am excited, like, excited, to welcome Giulia Prestia. She is a co-owner of Venturini Baldini, which is a historic producer of organic Lambrusco, yeah, Lambrusco, and sparkling rosé wines in Emilia-Romagna. An amazing place. Welcome, Julia. My pleasure. Thank you. And I am joined by a bunch of people. We have Katie Brown, Emma Cranston, Tim McCurdy, and Kat Walensky. And this is all part of our editorial team here at Vine Pair. So, hi, everybody. Hello. Hey hello. Everybody say hi to Julia. Hey, hey Julia. Julia. Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> hi. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for this, but I'm actually have, um, you were nice enough to send us some bottles of Lambrusco and I have all three of them open and I'll be trying all three of them because it's very exciting. Um, I, I guess I want to get this conversation started about Lambrusco, about the idea of Lambrusco and how us as an American culture has experienced Lambrusco. In the 70s and the 80s, we had certain brands that came over here that were a certain kind of, had a certain kind of texture and flavor to them. They were sweet, they were bubbly, and we got into it and it was cool. And that's what we thought was Lambrusco. And then now we're starting to see more Lambrusco coming onto the market. And I think that it's very, very exciting. It's like one of my, one of my favorite Italian wines. I love it so much. And I love what you're doing with it. So I guess you might be part of this new sort of like movement of Lambrusco and kind of showing what it actually is. And I thought that maybe if you could just talk about that, just kind of riff. Sure. No. And it's, and it's really an exciting time. It's, uh, I feel that Lambrusco has really, it's having a real revival and what you described as a new generation of Lambrusco, what is so exciting about it for us is also that it's actually you know, we're going back to the the old traditional way of making Lambrusco because it, it wasn't supposed to be the sweet, uh, cheerful drink that you had in, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, it, it is one of the most, um, uh, most uh, in terms of quantities, most exported um, wines in uh, from Italy. So it's a, it's a really broadly distributed wine. But I think... Uh, especially in the 70s, 80s, a, a lot of people associated it with a completely different type of wine um, than it actually historically was and, and, and than it should be. So what is so exciting for us is that we go back to the, um, the, the traditional type of, of Lambrusco, which is a dry, 
it's a premium type of Lambrusco. It's, um, you know, it's a serious wine, but it's, it's still the cheerful, happy wine that it should be. So it, it fits really nicely in the mood of the moment as well. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a very exciting time for us. I love it. I love, I just love the, I love the dryness. I remember when I first tried a, a real Lambrusco, I was like, oh, so this is what it's like. <laughs> I'm curious because you mentioned, you know, the Lambrusco of the 80s. What are some of the biggest misconceptions you think that consumers have right now about Lambrusco? Well, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is still that all Lambrusco is sweet. And arguably, I understand, of course, where that's coming from, because a lot of the, the, the wines that came, especially to the US, but also to other countries at that time, was really, really sweet. And, you know, they're still around. And in it's, you know, there are still um, producers who produce um, like very sweet um, Lambrusco, but there's more and more trend to go back to the dry uh, version, like I said, like we historically made. And and I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people need to see that, um, you know, it's not supposed to be sweet. So it's actually, it's it's still the, you know, the happy wine, as I call it in a way, because it's a very social wine. It's a very drinkable wine, but without being sweet. And then I think the other thing that um, people... Um, don't necessarily see is that how versatile Lambrusco is and how it's really a spectrum of tastes and colors and and grapes for that matter so it's very it's there's there's such a diversity in it I love that and what's interesting what I love when you say this this the thing about Lambrusco and when you have you know like this this idea of fun and the enjoyment of it. And I find that what's awesome about Lambrusco is it is bubbly. So it has this kind of effervescence and it has this sort of like this, this sort of idea of fun, but it is your wine in your region. So it just so happens that it, it's fun. It's seriously made, but it's sort of, it's fun to enjoy, if you will. I agree. And, yeah. And it goes very well with, and this is another thing about, about Amelia Romagna that I don't know if people know, but this is this is the place where we get balsamic vinegar, we get you know the Parmigiano Reggiano and all that, and it just so and there's like sort of a and I, I'm curious. It's said that the Lambrusco in this region was initially meant for, and this could be like a, a legend or something that because of its dry, bubbly nature, it's good for digestion or helps with the food. Is that correct? Well, I I, th I personally think it's it's the right wine for the kind of food that we're producing in our region. So there's definitely a fit between the food and the wine. And it's also the acidity that comes with it. If you look at the some of the grapes, maybe Sobara grape, for example, that has a really beautiful acidity to it, that really helps with digesting and, and setting off the the fatty food and yes it is a predominantly heavy food from our region but it's very it's it's delicious <laughs> god it's delicious and the funny thing is there's so much um you know when sometimes i think people don't put together all of the the things that you know people know parmigiano reggiano the the balsamic vinegar um the parma ham the cars, actually, just mentioning Ferrari, Maserati, you know, they're all from the same region. And it's and it's amazing, like, when, when you put it all together and you say that this is actually all coming from one region and it's Emilia-Romagna. Yeah. 
Yeah, Julia, um, I actually wanted to circle back. You just mentioned vinegar. I was super curious about the vinegars on your property, and I was wondering if you can tell us a little about what the vinegar tasting tours look like and your ancient vinegar cellar. Sure. I mean, so maybe just uh, to describe our property, we are um, a bit of an atypical estate because it looks more like uh, Tuscany or Piemont. So it has a, a very Tuscan feel with the cypress trees and, and the roads, the gravel roads going all the way up to into our hills. We're in the in the hills between um, Parma and Reggio Emilia. So really sort of alongside the Via Emilia that cuts across Emilia Romagna. And um you know, on on the property, you, obviously, you have a lot of uh, you have the vineyards and you have uh, trees and uh, forests and lakes and a lot of green and and we also have um, an acetaya. So an acetaya is a vinegar cellar. It's actually under the roof, so it's more like an attic in 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 reality, and it's one of uh, the oldest in general, and it's the oldest in our in our area in Reggio Emilia from the 17th century. So it's a really magical place. It's it's almost like a museum because it's completely intact. Has never, luckily, has never suffered any earthquakes or anything like that. So it's it's a it's a very unique place, and and that's where, you know, the the family that used to live on the on the property made their personal vinegar with a lot of you see a lot of um, uh, barrels making that vinegar. So that there's definitely a lot of um, vinegar being produced, and. Um, uh, and you know we are, we are continuing this tradition. We we're inviting people to see the 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 acetaya. They can taste all the the balsamic vinegars that we produce. So we we produce the traditional balsamic vinegars and then balsamic condiments. Uh, so it's 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 a big it's a wide spectrum of things that people can can taste. And then obviously the wines, they get a tour of the of the vineyards and and really learn about the history of the estate, history of the you know, the, the traditions of how to make balsamic vinegar. They can see and smell and taste everything. So it's it's a really beautiful, magical place. Oh, that sounds amazing. And one thing about this, um, from the production side, um, you, you, you're really big about organic agriculture. Yes. And I, I'm curious about what that's like in your area. Is this, is, is organic agriculture, I mean, I guess from wine to vinegar, um, is this a big practice in your, or are you, are you, are you spearheading this or is this something that's become a, a standard practice or it's gaining in popularity in your area? It's definitely gaining in popularity. I think all across Italy, you see a movement both from the consumer side, but obviously, um, a lot also from the producer side. And I'm very happy about that. Um, personally, as a, you know, it's uh, my my lifestyle. Um, so it's 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 a very rewarding thing to see that people are trying to convert to um, organic practices. It's difficult. It's not, it's, you know, it's a process. So it takes time. And mm -hmm. we are lucky because when, when we, um, when really the, the winery started operating, they started from the beginning as an organic winery. So the certification that we have goes back to the 80s. And oh. it's a it's a very uh, unusual thing because in you know in the early mid eighties, uh, not a lot of people were thinking about organic uh, farming in Italy. Uh, let aside the the certification, so so that helps a lot because it's been it's so established. So it's you know it's we we don't have to think about it every day, of course, but we do in a, in a way. So it's 
Uh, We we take it a bit for granted. uh, Perhaps that's the right way to say it, but it's a very, very important part of our, of our lifestyle, of our way of, uh, you know, working, of producing. And you need to cut me off if I talk about this too long, because I can get very passionate about it, but it's, you know, when you live in the, in the vineyards and you, you live so close to nature, you see it even more and you see how, you know, much more important it becomes to to be able to respond to nature and we we've we have the most natural ecosystem that we can provide you know it's not perfect but you know it's as close to perfect as we can we can make it and it definitely helps especially with the current climate situations that we have and that we see are becoming increasingly extreme in the in the last years Hi, Julia. This is Kat. Hi, Kat. I'm curious. Hello. I'm uh, curious about the organic certification there. Is it something that you feel consumers are looking for in the region or in Italy or even in Europe? I, it's, it's like very trendy here now, um, organic and biodynamic and natural wine. Not that these are all the same thing, but um, is this something that you were you did to respond to a market need or were you doing this from the beginning so we were we were doing it from the beginning and i uh, when my husband and i bought the estate in 2015 we uh, we, we were looking for an organic um, estate my husband also produces wine in in sicily it's also an organic winery so it was it was a very important part of um of our uh, sort of of our list of things that we wanted to see um and you know the fact that um, Venturini Baldini started out um, as an organic estate, as I said, definitely helps because it becomes part of you. Now, I I I completely believe in it, and I and it's it's beautiful for me to see also that there was a recent uh, couple of studies that were done recently that actually show that people perceive the wines also to be better tasting wines but they're definitely you know it's for me it's 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 a really big big part of how we operate and um and i firmly believe that it's a healthier way of of living um and um in terms of consumers i think increasingly consumers are looking for it uh, you know the states is is often leading at a lot of uh, development so you, you always you know, a step ahead in in most in most things, I think. But uh, in Europe, um, depending a bit on the country, but it's definitely already a big part, and it's only it's only increasing. And you know, with every new generation, um, although now it starts to cross, uh, it goes across generations as well. But with every new generation, I think it's it's becoming more important, and we see a lot of people specifically looking for organic wines. Mm, okay. Hey, yeah. uh, Hi. This is Tim here. Sorry, didn't mean to uh, cut you. Hi, Tim. <laughs> um, just, just wanted to kind of piggyback off off of that point that you're talking about there. Um, you know, maybe modern drinkers and trends. And I know that yourselves, you know, you produce a wonderful sparkling rosé, um, which most folks might not associate front with Lambrusco. Uh, I was wondering if you can chat about like how that's come about, and also kind of. I guess, you know, sparkling rosé in Italy in general, because I gather it's going to be a pretty big year. I think U.S. consumers are, are, are set to see a lot of that as well. So I was wondering if you can tell tell us about how you kind of stand out in that market as well. Because I, I think that's going to be huge this year here um, for U.S. drinkers. Yes, no, that, that, and it's a really good question um, because what we, you know, we, we come from Lambrusco, 
land, right? So our wines are Lambrusco, the um, you know indigenous grapes from our our area. So it's a very traditional wine um, in Emilia. But what we really wanted to achieve is also to bring a new generation to Lambrusco, a generation that maybe like we talked about it before had a bit of a prejudice against Lambrusco the, the, you know mm-hmm. there is there is still a, a long way to go because people sometimes associate completely different things to um to Lambrusco and, and then in the end they, they have a, a revelation when they when they taste it and the the Cadel Vento that you were speaking about our Lambrusco mm-hmm. rosé really helped to bring a whole new group of people to to taste to discover Lambrusco and then really start discovering Lambrusco. So they, you know, it's almost like it's opening the door and it is still a very completely authentic Lambrusco. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. DOP. So it's fast that, you know, it actually just made, it was, it was almost an, an, an add on that we discovered a little bit later. So it was not the intentionally the idea from the beginning, but it, it was a big part of the success of the um, of the Cadervento, obviously, that it 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 also spoke to people who weren't necessarily looking for Lambrusco, and then they discovered the whole world of Lambrusco behind it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Rosé, uh, you know, you know, no, Rosé has been having uh, a huge success in the last years, and um, sparkling Rosé. Um, there weren't that many um, so far out there, actually. And, you know, the, the the spectrum of Lambrusco with its various shades of red, pink, rosé, um, the various uh, grapes that you can use, um, so especially Sorbara, which is a very light grape. Uh, so it's a very light-colored grape. We have very short skin contact in this wine. Um, you know, that goes goes a lot into the rosé direction. And, and y- yes, definitely, this year is going to be um, I think this is sparkling rosé year, <laughs> for <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> but it's, I, I think it's great, as you say, you know, that, that name that's very recognizable to consumers, you know, Lambrusco. Um, but, a, but something new for people to discover and also draw them in to the region. Yeah, I think, you know, it is important and that is part of, of our work as well to really, um, it's a revival. It's a, it's a, I call it rinascita, no? the rebirth a bit of, of Lambrusco. And it's important to, to bring that new generation of Lambrusco to people and, and, and introduce them to what, you know, what we, we have and what we believe in. And, it's, um, and it definitely allows us, like I said, to, to, to talk to people who, who haven't discovered Lambrusco yet. So for people that are new to the Lambrusco category, I was been curious, like, what kind of glassware would you suggest drinking your wines out of? Because I think a lot of us are used to drinking sparkling wine out of a flute glass. Is that kind of the glassware that you would suggest? Or is there kind of a, would you prefer it out of a coupe glass or a regular wine glass? I, I tend to use either a regular wine glass or the the wide open. So either the coupe for the, the Cadel Vento, for example, is perfect. I think it also... You know, it fits the the mood as well, or like I said, the regular wine glass, or just a very open, wide, um, sparkling wine glass. You know, what like the ones I, I wouldn't go for the narrow flute, right? And can you explain why? Um, I it I think it's a personal preference as well, but I think it's really the the way the bubbles work, and it is you know it's um, not we we don't for example we don't have a very um, strong perlage so it's not overly bubbly 
it's a it's a slightly effervescent um, wine. So I think I think the even the regular wine glass just fits it much better. It can open up the taste gotcha. in a much better way. That makes sense. Um, so I have a I have a question. Well, let's. I wanted to talk about this because I, the, the fact that you know we think that you know rose sparkling is going to be very popular, and I think that Lambrusco is set to be very popular. Actually, I was in, I was in the DC market for a minute a couple of years ago, and there was a bar, a wine bar restaurant in DC that actually had Lambrusco Week every year, mm-hmm. and they made sure to you know expose people to what Lambrusco act, actually is. I mean, the fact that we have a I don't know about an. I don't know unless it's a novelty or a fun thing that people do on the side. I don't know of another wine on the planet that's popular and sparkling and red. I think it's very unique, and I think that you know we are poised to really kind of get into this 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 idea of Lambrusco. And I guess what I wanted because you had mentioned before, you said Sorbara, you said Salamino, um, the the Lambrusco wine. Is is Lambrusco the grape is not just one grape, it's multiple varieties of one style, of one family, and each one has a different kind of uh uniqueness to it to add to the Lambrusco. And I just wanted to like, is that there's something about this I think is important because as we start to get into Lambrusco on in on the American market to kind of give a sense of why it's dry, like what like there's one that has more of a violet aroma, one that has more of a dry, more of a dark. I was wondering if you could kind of like give us a sense of what these grapes are doing and how we're enjoying them on in these, in these wines. Yeah, this is co- exactly right. So it's a family of grapes. So Lambrusco comes in, in, in many different um, types of grapes. So we have about eight or nine, I think, on the estate. Um, and they have very different personalities. So they're very different um, grapes. For example, the Sobara that you mentioned has a very uh, strong acidity, beautiful acidity, and often it um, comes as a hundred percent Sobara, which is then you know you can imagine there's a, a, a very strong acidity in the wine. Uh, what we decided, for example, if I can go into the wines now, but what we decided to blend Sobara with Grasparossa. Grasparossa is another grape that is much more mellow and rounded, and That's that way we. That's another Lambrusco grape. That's it's another. Lamb- they're all Lambrusco grapes. So, right, so right. you have Sobara, Grasparossa. I'm, I'm, those are the the more frequent ones. Salamino is a very common one. Salamino makes our our Monteloco, for example. So it's a hundred percent Salamino. Then, um, you know, we have Maestri, Marani, uh, Monterico. So there, there, there are lots of different um, grapes, and that that is the the beautiful, that is the really exciting thing about Lambrusco that uh, you can make it so versatile and so different. And there is not one Lambrusco. There's really, it's a whole spectrum. And you can make it your own. Like you basically, you have these varieties that you work with, yeah. and you blend to kind of make your own statement on your Lambrusco. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it, it goes a little bit. It's you know some regions, some grapes are dominant in some in some areas of our region um so there's a little bit of a difference perhaps in in terms of geography but but yes we we have uh, we're lucky we have quite a a large um variety on the estate and you you start you know you blend so the marchese manodori for example the other uh, wine that you have is a blend of four different types of lambrusco grapes 
We use a lot. We use a lot. So the common one is uh, Salamino, Grasparossa, and Sobara. Those are the very common ones. Perhaps also ma uh, Maestri. Um, so it's, but it's it's very exciting. We, we for example, we made a, a, a still red wine um, out of a grape that was always used to blend Lambrusco, and you know it was never used for still wine. So it's that is the exciting part of winemaking. You can. You can experiment. <laughs> right. And I actually, I'm drinking the Marchese uh, Monodori right now. And I'm, am I, this is the thing about sparkling wine made from red wine grapes. Is, is, am I experiencing tannin? Is this something, how do you guys, that, you know, tanning, uh, you know, for, for the listeners out there, tannin is the drying sensation in your mouth when you drink a red wine. Um, and this is a sparkling chilled red wine, uh, wine made from red grapes. Is is tan? How do you, how do you guys do? You just let that kind of weave in, or how do you mess with that? Yeah, yes, but you it, you're right. You're experiencing that. It's um it comes from um I think Maestri and Marani, for example, um, contribute a lot to that um, type of experience. Um, Malbu Gentile is another one that you use if uh, if you needed a bit more tannin in in a wine. But um, uh, you know, it's it's. For example, I don't know if 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 that's um, what you were aiming to to ask. The way you make it is in a steel tank, right? So you have different. Actually, you have you have different ways of making Lambrusco. You can make it as a, a traditional way, like champagne, or you can make it um, in the Metodo Charmat, which means that you basically do a second fermentation in the in a steel tank, or um, or you do it in the like the ancestral way, so where it's it's fermented in the bottle. So they're they're really also very different ways of making Lambrusco. I just find it just fascinating that I'm drinking, like I'm drinking it right now. I'm drinking this mm -hmm. awesome red wine that's bubbly and it's fruity and it's alive and it has a dryness to it and it's it's spicy active, a bit, and it's no? spicy, that's which is crazy yeah. and it's refreshing and there's tannin. It's yeah. like the most it's the coolest thing. It's like I it's like I could just sit here and eat and drink this by myself just with this glass or I could have some cheese with this. It has, it has just such a versatility to it. And I think that that what's so exciting about this wine is that you, when, as we get more excited about Lambrusco on our market, that's, what's going to like really kick it off is that sort of like, Oh my gosh, there's depth here. Yeah. Just really cool. Sorry. That was, uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 just, I, I agree with you there, Keith. I mean, you said something earlier too, which is this idea of, you know, Lambrusco being the only region and wine in the world that is, is popular and sparkling and red and just hearing about, you know, and, and tasting that idea of tannins in a sparkling wine, I think it really, yeah, it takes us somewhere else and it's something new for us to enjoy. You know, maybe, you know, sparkling wine, oftentimes I find it goes down too easy. Um, but so having something that's sparkling in the glass, but maybe a bit more contemplative, I think that'd be great. I, I, I think I can really see it. Yeah as Keith says, like people discovering that and, and loving it. And the thing is, and on the, on the American, I know I'm going to ask, this is always like, of course, this is because we're talking about why we're talking about food pairings, of course. And if you were, look, this is going to be a wild question. If you're in New York and, or if you're in the United States and you have your Lambrusco and you're not in, you know, Modena, what would you, what do you think, what would you eat with a Lambrusco? Here in the states, spare ribs. Oh, man, <laughs> or, or 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 a good steak. 
Steak and, and Lambrusco, that makes complete sense. Isn't that weird? Like you just said steak and Lambrusco. People in America, like that's that's awesome because we were just talking about tannin. We're talking about that 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 sort of structure of the wine. And for 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 American ears to hear Lambrusco and steak is kind of crazy. But man, that would absolutely yeah. work. And you know, when we when we spoke about um the food from Emilia Romagna, you know, it's a, there's a lot of meat in our food. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, actually, because you see similar traditions in many countries, uh, but it's not just the pasta, it's not just the pizza, because that's often what people associate with Lambrusco. It's, it's a lot of meat. So it's, uh, like I said, it's the barbecue or steak or boiled meat. But it's also, I find, spicy um, cuisines, um, Asian cuisines, for example, I think I, especially our our um, customers in um, in Asia, for example, they have amazing pairings, and you know it wouldn't be the first idea you had of it, but it it's it really works, and it's it's all the anytime you have something a little grassy or fatty fatty food, salmon, for example, goes really well with lambusco. and wow. it's uh, it you know I, I I wouldn't have thought about it first, but um but it's it makes sense. That's cool. That is so cool. I did, that's here we are now. We're we're basically just showing the diversity of this wine. But the thing is, if you know, as this health crisis we're in right now get goes away, and <laughs> and we can travel again, it would be amazing. Also, if you can, you know, having having Lambrusco in America is awesome, and I can't wait for us to get more and more into it because I think it's something that we really should be getting into. But also, people can get on planes and go over and see you and uh, experience it over, over there. And I, like Emilia Romagna, it's a, it's a very welcome, it's very welcoming to tourists, right? It is. It is. And it's really having um, a huge, um, I, I don't, I can't say comeback because it's really a first, um, it's never been a, an overly touristy um, area. Romagna maybe yes, because you know, it's on the, on the sea, but Emilia is, it, it's, it's the, the real new discovery. And I think it, you know, it's the, the food, it's the Moto Valley. Bologna has been having a huge success in the last years. People are discovering all the, the cities around us and we are really at the heart of it, which is, is, is wonderful because we, everything is in a, in a short distance from our place, but it, but it's really, it's an exciting region to discover and it's right in the middle of Italy. That's, that's what I know. It's like, it is the center. It is it's yeah. amazing. So, and how, how can people find you? You're, you, you're on Instagram and, and people can get, go onto the website and, and they can see, you know, potential tours and stuff like that, right? Yeah, we're on Instagram. So we're on Instagram with Venturini Baldini, but also with our Wine Relay. So the Wine Relay has its own very special Instagram. It's called Roncolo1888, which is the, the date of... Our, our the villa when it was built, and um and so and and the Nacetaia di Canossa, which is our balsamic vinegar. So, but if they if they start with Venturini Baldini, they'll find everything. And um, if people want to contact us, we 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 are here. We are you know we are opening now in April, even though it's still a bit of a slow slow season with uh, Europe um, not having started travel yet. But um we we are looking forward to an exciting year. So go to Emilia Romagna. Go to Roncolo 1988, have a tour of balsamic vinegar, drink the amazing bubbly red wine. That sounds 
basically awesome. I mean, start start here in the United States, guys, and then then go over there because the, the Lambrusco here is a, it needs to be a thing. It's awesome. Um, watch and watch some Fellini before you go out there. He's famously from Rimini and Emilia Romagna, so nice little oh, way to prepare. Yeah, Any nice out there. I like that. All right, cue it up on the on the on the on the queue. Cue it up on the queue. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. thank you so much julia for 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 joining us today i know you're all you're actually in italy so thank you so much for taking the time thank you and um look forward to the season coming up at lambrusco you know very excited for it to be on our market and enjoying it and actually saying okay this is actually lambrusco (laughs) thank you so much it's been a real pleasure Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Paris headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Paris Station Director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Vine Paris co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg. Vine Pairs art director who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vine Pair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.